Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify women and BIPOC voices. We're bringing Wonder Women Tech to the airwaves. I'm your host, Lisa Mae Brunson. It's Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Women Tech Show. And today's guest is someone that I've come to absolutely admire, reading her story and seeing how resilient and just incredibly remarkable she is. I am super excited to share her with all of you. After losing her right lung to cancer, Edie Littlefield Sunbeak became the first person in history to walk the entire 1,600-mile El Camino Real de las Californias Mission Trail through the mountain wilderness of Mexico and the Sonoran Desert to Northern California. She experienced desert heat and cold, walls of cactus, sleeplessness, hunger, both physical and spiritual exhaustion, the dangers of wild creatures, and encounters with drug smugglers. She also went weeks with no water other than what a pack mule could carry. The Mission Walker, published by HarperCollins, is her first-hand account of the experience and struggle she endured and the inspiration drawn from the old, unmapped Spanish mission trail. Her story is both an adventure story and a reflection on the universal experience of confronting our own mortality. It is a story of what we will do when faced with the potential end of our lives. What do we do with our time left on earth? And how much do we still really, truly want to live? Welcome to the show, Edie. Thank you, Lisa May. It's such a such a pleasure to speak with you. It's so wonderful to have you here. You know, first of all, I have to say that I'm so grateful for your resilient spirit because there are not many people on this planet who will take a terminal diagnosis and then decide to walk across the wilderness, braving other life-threatening and extreme situations. So I just want to say thank you for showing up. Well, you, you know, Lisa May, it didn't happen one step, two step. It happened over the course of months and years uh, because fighting stage four cancer, especially one as lethal as gallbladder, which is as lethal as liver and pancreatic, even more so in many cases. It, it's, it, 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 uh, the fact that I'm alive uh, makes me the luckiest person on earth. Yeah. And and it's, and and the walk was uh, was a healing aspect of after I lost after many radical surgeries and almost a million milligrams of chemo, uh, the way I was able to uh, kind of put my body back together was through walking, the amazing yeah. healing power of walking. But um, and and I walked the old Mission Trail. I walked it in two two segments. The first time in 2013, uh, six months after losing my right lung at Stanford Cancer Center, I walked 800 miles 
Uh, took me 15 miles a day, 55 days uh, to walk that out, to heal. And yeah. then two years later, Lisa May came back, and, and that's when I, I knew that it could explode in my lungs. It came back in my remaining lung. And that's when I once again headed out on the old mission trail, this time where it started in Mexico. Well, before we battle the desert with you and dig deeper into your cancer journey, I'd really love for you to take us backwards to your childhood. You know, you grew up in rural Oklahoma with your cotton farming parents and dreamed of being a cowboy. So can you share a little bit about what that was like for you? Absolutely. In fact, you know, uh, Lisa May, I think that many of the things we do in life, some of the most meaningful things we do in our life, if we trace it back, it goes back to the dreams and the passions of our 10-year-old child. Because I think we carry within us our, that inner 10-year-old child throughout our entire life. Yeah. And my 10-year-old child was ignited on that cotton farm in rural Oklahoma. Um, you see, I was next to the youngest of 12 children. And two things about that. Number one, <laughs> as the youngest of 12 children, you get really used to defying authority because you got a lot of authority over you when you're the next to the youngest of 12 kids. Everybody's telling you what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so Lisa, oh Lisa May, are you the oldest or are you the youngest? I'm, I'm the oldest of six. So nobody told me what to do. I don't even think my parents did. Like we, we pretty much raised ourselves. So I can only imagine, you know, having a dozen people ahead of you with your parents being able to tell you what to do. Well, think about the sixth uh, ch child in your family. And when you tried to tell them what to do, uh, you probably got a, who says so, right? <laughs> well, the fifth one, because my, my sixth one is actually, there's 21 years difference. So I wasn't even around. That's my dad's uh, daughter. But, you know, my youngest uh, sibling definitely has said that he completely defied us for sure. Exactly. And, and, and that is so healthy. Who says so? Uh, because <laughs> that defined, that has defined my entire life. Because healthy skepticism Lisa May can kind of pull us through anything. Uh, it's when we take things as face value. Uh, you know, I think it Will Rogers said, you know, it's not what we know that gets us in trouble. It's what we don't know that we think we know that gets us in trouble. <laughs> Will Rogers being a good open. <laughs> but, but so that was the first thing. The second thing regarding your question of growing up on that rural farm, the second thing that made such a huge difference was my mother. My mother taught us from the very earliest, and she was too busy to really raise us, just like it sounds like in your, 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 your family, which, by the way, is a really good way for kids to grow up. It's so much better to grow up that way than with helicopter parents or with your, your whole day scripted out. And it's so much more empowering to power your own life, so to speak. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. My mother, she was all worn out. She was exhausted by the time I came along. Uh, but, but, but her spirit was not exhausted. And she taught all of us that whatever you want to do with the right will and the right belief and, and with God's grace, you can do it. And for me, that meant I could do it, even survive incurable terminal stage four gallbladder cancer. 
when the odds are less than 2% of life after wow. a couple of years. Only 2% of people make it more than two years. But my mother would have made it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because you, you've said before, you know, like you lived in pretty dire, uh, well, what we would determine as as dire straits, you know, living on a farm with, you know, what was the water and electricity no situation? Running <laughs> no running water. They used to call that running water. By the way, you open your tap and you come, running water is coming from your faucet. We don't call it running water anymore, but it actually is. On a farm, you have no running water. You just have a cistern and you pump your water. Uh, and also on a farm uh, in rural Oklahoma, we forget that in the 50s and 60s, that uh, 1950s and 1960s, much of rural America was still getting electrification. Electrification uh, was a slow, gradual process. And the part of Oklahoma where I was, I was four, four years old, five years old before electrification came to the, the farm. Uh, so, so we had kerosene lamps. We didn't have lights. But you know, on a farm, you like to go to bed with the chickens because the chickens are definitely going to wake you up in the morning when they get up. <laughs> You know, so it's the rhythm of nature. It's the rhythm wow. of life. And um, and another thing about life on a farm is you don't compare yourself to anyone else, which is so healthy. I think it's all this comparison and the social media stuff. I think it's sickening our souls. Um, but on a farm, I mean, you know, it's like there's nobody to compare yourself to. You are who you are. And, yeah. and, and actually, there's nobody out there saying, don't do this, don't do that. You just do what you want to do. You know, although my dad, he would say, stop running in the wheat field or, you know, or, or stop chasing the cows. He'd <laughs> 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 get upset with us for doing that. But you know something? We still did it. And, <laughs> and we were wild, wild. And, and uh, it was tornado country, too. Uh, so there was a certain electrification in the air, you know, a certain... There's certain electricity in the air. Yeah, my brother and my sister live in Oklahoma. And, you know, right now I was contemplating visiting them. And my sister's like, oh, yeah, it's about to be tornado season. I was like, oh, I'll see y'all in. I'll see you guys at the end of summer. Exactly. <laughs> but, exactly. No, I have an aunt, Lisa May, that was struck by lightning. Oh, my God. Twice. What? Yeah. What's the odds of that, huh? And she survived both times. Oh, yeah. Like I said, she's a rule. Yeah, she's part of my family. Like my, she said, everybody <laughs> in my family is. You can't survive being struck by lightning once. Well, yes, you can. You can even be, survive being struck twice. Yeah, it's, I feel like I need your genes, Edie. Like, <laughs> no, you need wow. my mama. You need my. Yeah. The world needs mamas like my mama. Wow. Well, there definitely seems to be that survival spark in you. Since you were younger, I mean, you you also took on all sorts of odd jobs. And to pay for college, you were a janitor, a philosophy journal proofreader, a librarian, and a door-to-door -door Bible salesperson. How did you become one of those? Because I'm not going to lie, whenever we saw a Bible salesperson, we either hid, you know, or shut the door in their faces. So, like, you had to have had, like, the building blocks for being resilient. Through, through all of those. <laughs> knocked at a lot of doors like your door. And, and because I got a lot of doors slammed in my face. But you know, 
It was one of the best experiences of my life because, you know, Lisa May, people don't slam the door in a Bible salesman's face because it's personal. They slammed the door because, whew, they may have just got a salesman selling encyclopedias yesterday. Anyway, so I learned <laughs> to accept rejection as not being personal. And, and, and you know, you're told that, you know, you need to knock on 30 doors and you need to be able to tell 30 people about this Bible set. It's a Bible history, a Bible storybook, and a Bible encyclopedia. And if you tell 30 people a day, guess what? You're going to sell two of them. So it also level set my expectations. You know, I think in today's world, we're told that, hey, if you knock on 30 doors, you got to sell at least 29. Oh, yeah. What, yep. Lisa May, what an anchor around your neck. No, you're lucky in life if you knock on 30 doors, you sell two Bibles. <laughs> That's what I learned at the age of 17. And I also learned that, that uh, when I knocked on Lisa May's door, that I didn't know what was going on. And that if they slammed that door, I got kind of got the feeling that maybe that, that that it certainly wasn't because of me, but I had a deep compassion and empathy for why people wouldn't want to talk to me. Because, I mean, there's fear of people knocking on your door, too. For all they knew, you know, for all they knew, I was a ruffian. I probably looked it a bit because I was <laughs> knocking on doors riding a bicycle. I 17, couldn't drive a car. So we have to, I think, in, in life, put ourselves in the other person's, um, the other person's moccasins, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that you really had to learn humility even at a young age, because you know, as a cotton farmer, you're probably having to wear your own clothes, and and so so you didn't have the sort of kind of ego building blocks that the most of the rest of us have, right? When, when, when we kind of feel like we're better than someone else. So you pretty much already had, it sounds like an expectation that was very realistic just well, across the board. A, you know, Lisa May, in a rural environment, your school, everyone's pretty much in the same position you are. And actually you're a lot better off if your mother can sew. And, because if your mother can sew... Uh, back then, everything was recycled. Let me tell you, you bought flour to make your bread. You made your bread at home. You bought that flour, and it was in a beautiful Pima cotton. We didn't call it Pima cotton. It was a beautiful cotton of flour, beautiful, beautiful patterns, and it was called flour sack material. And all of our dresses, even our underwear, uh, was made of those beautiful flour sack materials because, you see, my mother could sew. And so she could sew and make us look as nice as anyone, probably even nicer than someone buying a store-bought dress. Because we, they knew my, my mother knew how to do things with her hands. And she could mm. crochet, she could quilt. Um, and she could also bake bread. She could make butter from, you know, she could milk a cow, skim off the butter fat from the top of the milk, and she could shake a mason jar and make our butter. I learned all of those things, um, which was where butter comes from. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. first, I, that to me, it sounds like the, the, the first innovation, right? Was really our ancestors and, you know, the generations before us having to pretty much build like that, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly, Lisa May. And that's why we have to have such a reverence, 
such a reverence for the past. And, and that's one of the reasons I enjoyed walking the old mission trail, because when you're out walking a very, very long, old, 300-year-old trail, you are encountering the past and the present, and you have a glimpse into the future with every step. Yeah. Well, I mean, if as you were journeying through, you know, your odd jobs, trying to pay for college, what was it that you were, what were your goals when you were going to school? To get the hell out of Oklahoma. <laughs> I loved Oklahoma, but, but, but you know, you always want to, you always want to get away from home, right? You always want to emancipate yourself, so to speak. You know, you want, you want to be your own person and, and you want other opportunities. And my mother always, we always knew that there were just, when you, when you start low on the ladder, there's a lot of rungs. And, and so it's kind of exciting when you, when you, when you start yeah. at the top of the ladder, all you do is cling to, you know, claw to try to stay there. Uh, but when oh, you're out on the ladder, you just, I mean, it's kind of exciting trying to get to the next step and the next step. You know, you understand. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm from New Mexico. I, I, I could not wait to get the hell out myself. So I, I get it. <laughs> so what did you go to school for? Like, what was your educational journey like? And I will, I will answer that, but I want to just one little caveat. Lisa, <laughs> I love going back home. Do you love going back home now? I love, so my family has all spread out. The only person home anymore is my dad, but I do love going back to New Mexico because it has the most amazing food. <laughs> oh, yes. And it's <laughs> but, so beautiful. It's so, those, so yeah. Yes. And the skies and, yes. and you know what, the nature, cause you know, both of us, you and I are both in Southern California. So, you know, you know, the nature looks a little different, although I know you've, you've had the opportunity to see so much more than I have, but I love the skies. You know, I love the mountains. Yes. I love the skies. Yes. I love the desert. Now what that tells me, Lisa May, is you spend a lot of time looking up. And and that's another thing that's missing today is people are looking down. They're looking at those little screens called cell phones and those little tablets. They're looking down. They're not looking up at the heavens. But I was also raised looking up at the heavens, the clouds. I was in the stars and the wind and the, you know, yeah, yeah. Looking up. That's so true. Oh, I love that. That's such a good nugget too. It's, It's such a good metaphor for who who we were then and who we are now, right? Uh, yes. We really do need to look up more. Yes, we do. Because once you look up, you're immediately grateful. You're filled with a, with a sense of wonder. You're filled with a sense of hugeness, bigness. And you realize how small and insignificant we are in that hugeness. But you yeah. know, but we're also a very important part of that hugeness. Because each and every one of us is unique. Each and every one of us is a miracle. Just like each and every one of those stars, each and every one of those cloud formations are unique. Uh, And I want to speak a little bit, uh, Lisa May, to education. Because you'd think in rural Oklahoma, the next youngest of 12 children, my my mother was the oldest of 15. Uh, You would think that there weren't a lot of education opportunities. Well, my mother the oldest of 15 children, raised as a tenant farmer, a sharecropper. Uh, They never owned their own land. They just picked cotton for other people. 
Oh, and wow. there's 15 of them. You would think that there would be no education. Well, my mother graduated from college in the Depression in 1936. My mother graduated from college and become, became a teacher because wow. she had the will to do that. And she was a hired girl starting at the age of 12. And to get to be a hired girl, what you would do, they, you know, there was, was no money in the family other than you know what they could earn picking cotton, and that's a very seasonal. So she would go around in the town, knock on doors, and see who needed help. Maybe they had a new baby. Maybe someone was sick. And she was the hired girl. She would live there. She'd work for the family. She would be, she'd work for room and board, and plus maybe a dollar a week. And she, my mother started doing that at the age of 12. And, and she did it all through high school. She couldn't even, and, and then she was lucky because she was able to, to go to college, but she'd had to get up at 4.30 in the morning and make the bread, iron the clothes, fix the breakfast, whatever, and then she could go to her classes. She could not afford textbooks, but she went to the library and she studied in the library and brought books home for the library. Because see, my mother was not a, was not a, I can't do this kind of person. My mother, and you could talk to my mother years later and say, oh, mama, I'm just, wow, how'd you do that? And she'd look at you kind of quizzically and she just, I just did it. I just did it. Um, mm. She didn't, she never saw herself as being unique in any way. She was deeply, deeply religious. Uh, she loved God so much. She was such a good Christian. And she always felt comforted by the fact that uh, with her father, God was always with her and, and her father, God, everything was okay. Even though she might not know at a particular time and place, what was happening, she felt such trust, such faith. And I think that it was that trust that elevated her above all fear for her entire life. And she wow. instilled that elevation in our hearts as well. That's so incredibly inspiring, Edie. I really appreciate you sharing your mother with us. I adore my mother. I've never met anyone. And she was so crippled uh, the last five or six years of her life. She went through so much pain. She was so crippled from osteoporosis. She's bent double and she couldn't walk. And she, yes, but you know, her spirit was never bowed. Her spirit was never diminished. Her body was so diminished but her spirit was never diminished. She wow, was the so most incredible. phenomenal person I will ever, ever know in this life and beyond. Oh, that's so powerful. Well, Edie, you clearly have, you know, the seeds that she planted in you. You've blossomed into such an incredible woman yourself. I mean, you eventually entered corporate America working at IBM as a sales executive and also as an area vice president at Pacific Telesis. And you also became a technology entrepreneur. So the contrasts are so interesting, you know, to go from, you know, cotton farming to technology. Um, so walk us through that part of yeah. your life. Well, you know, there is this, there's, there's a pattern to our life. And my pattern was always sales. Remember uh, uh, that I, even as a youngster, I sold uh, newspapers. I delivered newspapers uh, as a, uh, 
going to college, I sold Bibles door to door, a sales job. So it was just really kind of natural to me that that I would get into sales. And that's that's how I joined IBM in sales. And the reason I always loved sales is because if you worked 300%, you can make 300%. And and I've always been gift. I was always being gifted with the uh, with energy, and I had the capacity to work hard, and and sales allowed me to work hard, and, and I've always been so motivated to make money. I love making money, and I love I just love it because it was it was reinforcement. It's like kind of like the, I don't know, it's kind of like a pellet, I guess. You know, you sell something and you get paid. Uh, you don't sell <laughs> something, you don't get paid. It's not personal. Uh, you know, I didn't have to suck up to anybody. I didn't have to brown nose anybody. I didn't. All I had to do was get out there, uh, selling Bibles, sell those Bibles, selling newspapers, sell those newspapers, and IBM sell those computers. And and as long as I did that, uh, they were happy, and I was incredibly happy. Uh, yeah. So it's like uh, a, a very straightforward. This is your job. Do your job. You'll get rewarded. It's done. Exactly. Exactly. And you don't, yeah, exactly. You get back what you put in, right? Exactly. And I like that because I've never really been good because I'm, I, you know, I'm the kind of personality that can drive people crazy, managers crazy because of that. Who's so, you know, you you don't want to tell your manager who says so. Now you can think it, but you can say it. Yeah. And so one thing that, uh, my managers did like about me is the fact that I just go off and do my own thing, uh, you know, kind of a, a kind of a, a wild duck, if you will, a, a, a rebel. A you, rebel. Like, you were a rebel, <laughs> well, I, you know, because I just I wanted to work hard, but then I wanted to just play hard, especially yeah. on the weekends. You know, I, I, you know, this email stuff they have today, and 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 taking the office home with you and all that stuff. Forget about it. You know, the, the office can have you from eight years old, from 830 to five, but then forget about it, you know, but we, we need to hear up. more of this, Edie. We need to hear more of this. I know so many of us, myself included, I'm so much better now, though. I will tell you after grinding and grinding and having a grinding mindset for, you know, 12 to 15 years, I literally refuse to do it now. But I, I don't know that I could ever be like, oh, you get me a solid eight hours and then I'm out. Like that will, I'm still working on that part. <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's it's really a different world today uh, because during that eight hours, you, you do a lot of little things in between that back then, you know, you went, you had a desk, you had a, you know, you just, you, you just did things uh, very much more structured, but you know, that, that structure was so, I love structure and uh, the philosophy of IBM. And it was Thomas Watson who really preached the kiss, the keep it simple and structured K I S S keep it simple and structured. Whether well, I always heard it as keep it simple, stupid. So that's I, a, I like yours better. <laughs> I do too. And I, I heard this stupid, stupid, but you know, you can, if it's simple, you can keep it stupid. Yeah, but it, <laughs> if it's structured, keep it structured and simple. Uh, and I think that with life, if we can just keep it structured and simple. Yeah, um, I like know, that. Yeah. I uh, need more structure. The essentials, Lisa May. The essentials. Yes. So, I mean, you know, the technology sector is super male dominated, especially then. So what were some of the challenges you faced in corporate America? 
Oh, yeah. You know, I think like within IBM, there were, well, when I was selling Bibles, I was the number eight woman that year. They hired eight women out of 5,000 salespeople because understandably, they were very concerned about a young girl knocking on strange doors in strange parts of town at all hours of the day and night. They were very worried about, you know, the, the safety factor. Um, but then what they learned after a couple of years is, my gosh, women were so much better than the men because when we knocked on a door, we actually were able to get inside the door because they trusted us. You know, you'd trust a young girl a lot more than you would trust a young man to come yeah. into your home. Thus, we had an advantage. And actually, I found the same thing, the same advantage when I was with IBM. Again, I was in the the first wave of hiring women. Uh, They had a lot of women engineers. Interesting. IBM always hired a lot of women in engineering, but they didn't have that many women in sales. Um, But I found that as a woman in sales, the biggest part, the hardest part, of your job often is getting an audience, is getting to talk to someone. Well, I've quickly found that I could call up the president's secretary. And if I knew her name, I'd say, hi, Mabel, this is Edie. Would you tell John I'm on the line? And <laughs> never ever Lisa Mason, who are you? <laughs> they never question because, you know, they, they didn't want, they, you know, they were afraid to, I guess. It could have been personal, right? And, 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 and you could call that deceitful. No, it was, I wanted to talk to John. You know, it's like, and how was I going to talk to him? Because his gatekeeper was Mabel, and she wasn't going to let anyone talk to John, you know? But, <laughs> but if I called up and said, hi, Mabel, it's Edie. Would you please tell John that, that I'm on the line? I'd get in, I'd, I'd get, I'd, and I'd get in, I'd, I'd at least have a few minutes to talk to them and just enough time. And, and oftentimes it was hard to set up the first appointment because I was selling people their first, their new computers. I was selling against competitively, what we call competitively installed accounts. And so they had non-IBM equipment. So I had to actually get a foot in the door, so to speak. And so once I got, you get the foot in the door, you know, um, and then, yeah, that's the only way to make a sale. And oftentimes it would take four or five or 10 or 15 whatever times it took to actually close the sale. But getting in that door is the hardest. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that. I'm just trying to think like, what is the equivalent of that today that I could do? (laughs) Lisa May, I bet you are an expert at it. Hey, listen, you are the one that can write the book on fearless asking. Yes, exactly. Yes. That's part of the, that's, part of the story. Well, you and I have some similar similarities there for sure, because I do, I do something similar in the sense that I do my research and find out like who's, who's at the table. And then I invite myself to their table as if we already know each other. So there's a, there's a simple, uh, a simple and similar um, strategy that we both have going for ourselves. <laughs> Lisa May, I tell you what, God, I, I would have loved to have hired you as a salesperson. <laughs> You know, I, I, and so, you know, a lot of biz dev, what I do with Wonder Women Tech is so much sales. I mean, I have to sell not just the work that we do and, 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 and what we create inside of our ecosystem, but I have to sell myself 
all the time. So in, in a variety of different ways. So I'm sure I would have done you proud. <laughs> and, and I understand how hard that is, Lisa May. I, I know how hard that is. And I know how how uh, even though you try not, we try not to take things personally and we try not to internalize no's and, and we, we, we try a rejection. We, we, you know, we, we all want to hear that word. Yes. We all want to see the smile on the face. We all want to see the signature on the check or the contract. Uh, That's what we all want. And, uh, but we also are realistic to to know that it takes so much hard work to get there. Um, Definitely. Well, we're going to take a break for today's Pioneering Women segment. Today's Pioneering Woman is Georgia O'Keeffe. Georgia O'Keeffe was a 20th century American painter and pioneer of American modernism, best known for her canvases depicting flowers, skyscrapers, animal skulls, and southwestern landscapes. Georgia O'Keeffe studied at the Art Institute of Chicago and the Art Students League in New York. Photographer and art dealer Alfred Stieglitz gave O'Keeffe her first gallery show in 1916. The couple then married in 1924. Considered the mother of American modernism, O'Keeffe moved to New Mexico after her husband's death and was inspired by the landscape to create numerous well-known paintings. O'Keeffe died on March 6, 1986, at the age of 98. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, Georgia O'Keeffe. Hello, innovators. We are back with Edie Littlefield Sunby, the inspirational and pioneering woman who has walked thousands of miles to discover the meaning of a life and hope. So, Edie, we're going to get into the deep down because this next part of your life is the most defining and life changing years of your life. Before we get deep, I do want to share with our audience that to be certain there will be tears flowing through the rest of this conversation. You know, cancer affects millions of people every single year, and it has unfortunately touched most of us. On January 25th, 2021, earlier this year, the Wonder Woman Tech family lost our social media director. And since the beginning uh, of this amazing journey with Wonder Woman Tech, Stephanie has been with us. So uh, at the time of this recording, it's exactly two months. So we're still kind of journeying through this. And and I expressed that to Edie um, prior to the recording of this. And I I just want to share a little bit of a testimony to the, to the character and, and love that Edie shows. I'm sure that you're already witnessing on this on this show. But, you know, I called her and I said, you know, Edie, I don't think I can do this interview. Um, And she, I I let her know how I was feeling and she immediately took care of me, embraced me verbally and was like, you know, whatever you need, I'm here. Um, You know, we can, we can share authentically and from the place of vulnerability because this is real life. Um, and I just want to thank you, Edie, for showing up for me that way 
even as you had to show up for yourself over and over and over again. So thank you. Uh, You know, it's interesting, Lisa May, I think I mentioned to you at the time that um, when, when, when you have someone, a friend or an acquaintance or a loved one going through this, um, you, you never know what to say. Um, even if you have been through it yourself and are, are you, you're going through it yourself, no words, no words can describe and no words can truly comfort uh, with, this, uh, with this disease. Um, you just have to elevate yourself above the disease. And I think that your friend Stephanie was able to do that from what I've, I've heard and read about her. She yeah. was positive up to the very end and grateful, grateful uh, with each day that she had. Um, yeah, it's so true. So thank you, Edie. Um, you know, we'd, We'd love to to hear your journey because I know when you were first diagnosed with stage four adenocarcinoma of the gallbladder, um, it had spread to your liver, your colon, your groin. Um, you know, what went through your mind when you were told your fate and that you only had three months to live? You know, it's interesting because you had uh, tweeted uh, back a couple of months ago is COVID was hitting you and you had some depression and then the situation with Stephanie. <clears throat> it was all hitting you at one time and you made the comment and said, oh my gosh, life can change so suddenly. Yeah. And, and that is that is so true. D- disease and calamity can hit us with terrifying intensity out of the blue. And um, and you're never prepared for it. You can never prepare for it. And you really don't know how you're going to react when it happens. You just one foot, one step in front of the other. And, uh, and those words, you have cancer or you have COVID or your mother has COVID or your grandmother in the nursing home has COVID, those are terrifying. And um, the, the, the reaction is fear, fear. Um, and fear, emotion can be deadly. Uh, fear can actually accelerate cancer's ability to kill. It can accelerate illness's ability to worsen. And, uh, and it can take a, a benign situation and turn it deadly. Fear, fear, emotion. Mm. Uh, fear can also trick us into giving up hope. And, and I think that's what happens a lot of times. Like, uh, we were getting so much negative news with coronavirus that the, the feeling was that if you got coronavirus, you were going to die. In fact, if you were over 80, you were going to die, period. It wasn't even a discussion. But you know the facts are only 20% of 80-year-olds with COVID have passed. Now, that's 20% too many. But that's 80% of 80-year-olds who made it through. And what I'm saying is that it's not the why, it's the why, you know, like not why me, it's why not me? Why can't I be that 80%? And even Mm. with stage four gallbladder cancer, only 2% made it through. But why not me? And when you turn it back to uh, that, you're really looking at the facts. Look at the facts. 
uh, wherever possible. And um, yeah, and the fact is, if you have stage four cancer, <laughs> you've got to kill the cancer before it kills you. One of you is going to die. And the cancer is so strong. It's relentless and it's smart. And the hardest thing, you got to find a good team, a doctor, who, um, and, and a, if it's stage four, hopefully it's a university research hospital where they're at the leading edge and, um, and, and to give you every chance you have. Because as long as you can continue getting treatment and as long as you can continue living, as new treatments are coming out, there's hope. And, um, and um, you have to put the brakes on fear in order to get there, to keep going. And all I can say is I'm lucky. I can't tell you why I'm alive. Um, I can't tell you. My doctor can't tell you why I'm alive. Um, I do believe that moving, that walking, um, has a lot to do with it. Lisa, may well, I how I mean, how old were you when you were first diagnosed? What year was this? Because I, well, I, I want to give the listeners context. And then also, um, how did it affect your family? Uh, it, the family is more affected by this than than the actual person having disease, uh, because the person having cancer is feeling it, experiencing it, is dealing with the experience of having cancer. The family and the uh, and the the circle, the caregiving circle around the patient, is it's anticipatory grief. They want you to they want to help you feel better, but they're powerless often to 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 be able to do that. Uh, and that powerlessness, powerlessness, that anticipatory grief is so much more spiritually debilitating than actual disease. Um, when you actually have the disease, you're dealing with it in a very mindful way. You're dealing with it moment by moment because you're forced to deal with it moment by moment. Someone who's watching you is dealing with it looking at how you're dealing with it and wanting to help and not being able to. So um, th- th- that's, a, that's, a, that's a very, very difficult to be a caregiver, incredibly difficult. I was diagnosed, I was 55 years old, and my children were going off to college, and it was going to be an empty nest. My husband and I was starting a new business, a new technology business. Uh, we actually had mortgaged our home because... That's what you do when you're starting up a new business. And, um, yeah, we, we were just so excited. Uh, and cancer and disease, calamity, never hits us at a convenient time, ever. And, and for us, it was the worst possible time. Uh, but I was 55 years old. I was arrogantly healthy. I mean, my gosh, I never had whipped cream on my hot chocolate. I never ate sugar. I... Uh, I didn't drink hardly any alcohol. I ate organic food. I went to yoga. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I was arrogantly healthy. Poster child of health, right? Poster child of health, and and I think that's uh, where disease and calamity. Uh, your hubris, your hubris, your yeah. You think uh, your arrogance will uh, get you every time with life. And, and so my mother always called that comeuppance and she always warned us a little bit, be a little careful, uh, be, be, always be humble and, and grateful, uh, for what you have. (laughs) 
Yeah, and, I mean, that's what I, Shakespeare said too. You know, it's better to to have the ills we have than to fly to others that we know not of. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you had you experience like at what point did that arrogant health turn into this vile disease? We we don't really know. We do believe that it takes two or three years for uh, it for what it always in the gallbladder. It almost always starts as a gallstone, and mm. and then from the gallstone there's irritation, inflammation. Almost all cancer is a result of inflammation, and and from there, you know, we all have errant DNA. We all have uh, we all have the beginning of cancer in us. And well, what what makes that errant DNA actually? actually explode into uh, cancer. And, and it usually is something like inflammation that triggers it. And so just the fact that you have gallstones and there's irritation in the gallbladder and the fact that the gallbladder is the puny little organ that we really don't need. It's tucked under the liver. It's close to the bile duct. It's it's really close to the, our, uh, the, the, the every important thing in our body. And, and what happens is once cancer breaks out of the gallbladder, most of the time it's not known because there are no symptoms, but by the time it breaks out, it's already in the liver by the time it's discovered. Oftentimes, for me, it was in my liver, but it's also wrapped around my bile duct. It was also in my rectum. It was in my peritoneum, and it even had migrated through my lymph nodes into my neck and my throat. Um, so I was filled with cancer. It was in eight organs. Um, and that's wow. not unusual for a stage four gallbladder cancer or a pancreatic or a liver cancer. That's just so incredible. I mean, listening to how invasive it was. And how quick it is. Yeah. And, and that's why uh, you cannot delay, you cannot deny. Delay plus denial equals death. Uh, you have to uh, you have to find a doctor. You have to trust that doctor. And if you feel uh, if you feel strong, that's as strong as you're going to be. And and if you choose to be treated aggressively, that's the time to be treated aggressively. But yeah. keep in mind that if you choose not to be treated aggressively, you may not have a second chance. Uh, and thus, the decisions you make cannot be prompted by fear, because see, fear causes us to freeze freeze. Yeah. And that's part of what um, uh, tricks us into giving up hope. Despair, yeah. you know, the despair of it. Um, uh, we get, we get, um, yes, you have to focus on, on just doing your best day to day, fighting it, praying. Uh, you know, I had only one choice and that was systemic chemo. And actually one choice, having one choice is good having too many choices is so stressful. And that's one of the problems we have today. We have too many choices. Yeah, Life is very easy when it's binary. <laughs> yes or no, you know, chemo or no. And, and so chemo was systemic chemo. And so I had to have a lot of it and it had to be very aggressive. And I had to learn to uh, let the chemo come in and kill the cancer without the chemo killing me. Chemo can kill you just like cancer can. Um, yeah. but, but I knew that chemo might kill me, but I knew that cancer would kill me. So chemo became my best friend. And, and I realized that how to process all this chemo, and it took six years, every three weeks or six years. I had 79 rounds of chemo. And, wow. and during this time, I mean, a lot was happening inside of me. Um, 
But every three weeks I had, except for when uh, we had gotten a hold of, uh, of, of it and slowed it down and I was able to have radiation or I was able to have a surgical removal. But I lost 10 inches of my colon, 2 inches of stomach, 60% of my liver. I lost part of my throat. And ultimately, it also came into my lung and I lost my right lung. Um, so it, all of those things that happened, I kept moving, I kept walking, I kept trying to keep hope alive. And Edie, I just, I'm listening to this because I'm, you know, there's days, I you know, I just climbed up the stairs, you know, 30 minutes ago and I was like catching my breath, you know, because COVID kind of messed me up a little bit ever since then. But that is nothing compared to what you've gone through. And so I'm literally like in awe I, I just I'm fangirling over here about just like you are the definition of resilience. But you know, Lisa May, one thing we have to remember, and even what you're going through, is that movement, how important it is. You've been through COVID. That means that your lung capacity, your, your respiratory system has been impacted. The way to heal that, the way to become whole is through movement. You see, our bodies are healing machines, and they require movement. Yeah. Our body requires movement to do its job. So, well, so run up and down the stairs. <laughs> Get well, up. Yeah, like double down, right? Well, you became the first person in history to walk the 1,600-mile El Camino Real de las Californias Mission Trail through the mountain wilderness of Mexico and the Sonoran Desert and across the border through California to Sonoma with one lung. Edie, what inspired you to take on such a journey as you were going through the chemo and going through everything that you were going through? Take us with you through the desert. Okay. First, and this didn't just happen sequentially, okay? First, in 2013, I walked, Stanford removed, Stanford Cancer Center removed my right lung. And six months later, I started walking the old mission trail. Because by the time we had removed my lung, I'd also lost uh, my liver. I'd, I lost my liver. I'd, I'd gone through all this chemo, a lot of radiation. And we had finally, finally subdued it. And we took out that lung. And the to heal, I knew I needed to to do something pretty wild and crazy to elevate, to rise above it in order to heal my body. And uh, I had to expand the available lung capacity I had. And so driving up to Stanford for the surgery, we had driven up, my husband and I, in the car 500 miles from San Diego to uh, Palo Alto to San Francisco. And we had passed on Highway 101 all those mission bells every mile, the old mission trail. And, and I was so happy to be alive. As I saw those mission bells out there on the highway, as I was going up to have my lung removed, I remember thinking I wanted to just hug every single one of them. I was so grateful to be alive. And so after Stanford took out my lung, and six months later, I took off from Mission San Diego. A friend drove a camper van, and um, and so I had a place, a safe place to sleep every night. But I started to walk. And once I started to walk, I couldn't stop until I got actually to Sonoma. I walked every day 
I only took three days off. I was gone 58 days. It was a 55 days to get to Sonoma. I averaged almost 15 miles a day of walking. And the interesting thing is, Lisa, I mentioned the body's a healing machine. When I got to Sonoma and I came back then to San Diego and I had my lung capacity checked, I had pretty close to 80% normal lung capacity with just one lung because my body, that walk had restored my lung and my breathing ability, my lung capacity, my breathing ability. And uh, what was that physical journey like? Because, you know, one time I went on a hike, I was in... um... Italy. I went to the Cinque Terre and the the hike was pretty tough for me. And 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 it's hours, it's only two, two or three hours, I think, with the most I had hiked. And I thought it was the most inside of my brain. I was like going through all kinds of thoughts. I traveled backwards in time to my childhood. I thought mm-hmm. about my successes and failures. I thought about all the things I wanted to do. Plus, I was afraid of heights. So I legitimately, no joke, I mean, some people laughed at me when I tell this story, but like I thought I was going to, I didn't realize how crazy the Cinque Terre was in terms of like cliffs and like falling, like the ability to fall right off into, you know, nothingness. And so I even was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to have a helicopter take me out of here and save me. Like I went through the most emotional journey in those three years. I mean, three, three years. It felt like, it felt like many years, but in those... <laughs> In those three hours, I was very chatty in my head. So, and and then physically just having to like keep going, Lisa May, just one more, right? So, but you, you're talking days and upon days. Lisa what, May, what your that? experience, your experience is so spot on with the experience that, that, that what's actually happening to, happening to us when we're walking. Number one, when we're walking, we're pouring out. We're pouring out the clutter. You, you know, you, you, were, you were completely unplugged from social media. You were unplugged from, from uh, everything. But so you, you were pouring out the clutter. And, and that mind, your mind was wrapping around all the events, if you will, and, and, and pouring it out and, and allowing you to understand them and make connections. And, and, and you have just amazing clarity of thought when you're walking. And uh, we think about as fast as we walk, actually. It, it slows down our thinking enough to really, really think through things. So that's what you were doing. You were pouring out the overflowings. You are pouring out the emotion. And as we poured out the emotions, after we pour out the fear, and it took me 800 miles, 55 days of walking, to pour out all the emotions, all the fear I had from six years of dealing with stage four gallbladder cancer. I poured out the emotion. Once I poured out the emotion... It's an empty space, right? I feel with grace. I feel with grace. In 800 miles, I became a walking prayer. See, every breath was ah, cancer out. Every breath in was grace in. So I unplugged. I poured out the clutter. That's the first thing that you were doing on your walk and that I did with mine. The next thing you were describing on your walk is you were facing your fear. You were facing your fear of height. I was facing my fear of uncertainty. I was facing my fear of cancer. I was facing my fear, my fears. And fear is interesting. Once you face it, it starts to go away. 
and 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 you face your fear and that's how you defeat your fear and and nothing does that better than a long walk and we're ta- talking about a walk for exercise we're not talking about going out and walking around for an hour or two hours uh, we're talking about a serious, serious walk. And and I would just uh, say, Lisa May, if you ever want to transform your life, get out there and walk three or four or 500 miles. And I don't care what's going on in your life. Take a pill. Don't take a walk. I mean, take a walk. Don't take a pill. Never, never, never take a pill. If if we everyone got out and walked, pharmaceutical, pharmacies would be out of business because walking is the best medicine. Hippocrates said it. Um, uh, Dr. Frieden, who at the time was in charge of the CDC, he said walking is the closest thing we have to a miracle drug. And I tell you what, Lisa May, I'm a walking example of of, of that. You literally are. I really am. The amazing healing power of walking. Okay. Well, when I got to Sonoma, I got to uh, Northern California. And by the way, there's 21 missions there. So it's not 800 miles. I was walking. I had a goal. I had a purpose. I was going somewhere. It's important that we our feet were going somewhere. I had a purpose. There was meaning to my life. I had a purpose was to walk to all those 21 missions and just be grateful and thankful I was alive. And, and so um, two years later, after that walk, two years later, Cancer came back in my remaining lung. And uh, because that's what stage four cancer does, it comes back. Uh, and so at the time it came back in my remaining lung, it was just a big tumor, not a cluster of tumors. Stanford was able to radiate it with high intensity radiation. And uh, within, within a month or two, I was on a plane flying down to Loreto, Mexico, with the pe- because that's where the mission trail begins, not in San Diego. The California mission trail begins 800 miles south of the border in Loreto, Mexico. Mm. And, and I had such a desire, such an obsession, such a passion, such a love of that old mission trail. And, uh, and I wanted to go and I wanted to walk from the very beginning. I wanted to walk out the fear of cancer coming back. Did you find God on the trails and the meaning of life? I'll just say that I've never been so transcendent in my entire life. After about four to 500 miles of walking, your body is reformed, you know, because we don't walk as much anymore. So you, you have to retrain your, your hips, your pelvis, your back, everything. You're going to have pain. You can even have spasms. Uh, your your feet are going to go through. Your, your your toenails could turn black, fall off. You're going to go through blisters and healing, probably even a couple of turned ankles. All these things are happening, but you just keep walking. And as you walk, the body is healing. And and so uh, so so yes, you uh, you're transformed physically. You're you're going through a physical transformation. But but that's only a very small part of the transformation. You're going through a spiritual transformation. And and once your body stops to hurt, and after about four or five hundred miles, you're no longer walking with your feet on the ground. You're walking, soaring. It's almost like your feet aren't even touching the ground. When I got to Sonoma after 800 miles, I did not want to stop walking. 
I was in such a rhythm. It's such a primal rhythm that is so embedded in who we are. And um, I was so transcendent. I felt addicted. I spine-tingling transcendent. I felt addicted to God. I felt I was so close. I was so, because I, I transcend, I had transcended the physical in that 800-mile walk. Wow. I transcended fear. I had transcended my body. I had, uh, uh, my, my body had healed. My lung capacity, I was able to breathe again. And, uh, and just the, the fact that I had become a walking prayer. I was re, renewed, reborn. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say reborn because, yes. you know, oh, yes. I um just listening to you, you know, I, I, I've been through nothing like what you have gone through, um, but I've had just back to back to back to back to back to back whammies that I, I mean, I, I have. I, I felt depleted. I, I'm I'm there. I'm there today. If I want to be very honest, I'm in the middle of trying to figure out like how do I recover, you know, myself because I I have been through so much. I mean, just building Wonder Woman Tuck and the ups and downs and the cha- the absolute challenges and the doors slammed on on my face and having to pick myself up and then. Um, health challenges. I have a few other things that have gone on. Nothing as dire as yours. Um, and then losing, you know, someone to this oh. and someone who was a part of my work and my legacy. And 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 it's even the small things. I mean, a little, sometimes we get beat up by just too many things being compounded, you know. And that's that's kind of where I'm at. And you know, I, I'm listening to you, and I'm like, Lisa, I, I need that. I need some sort of a pilgrimage. Yes. That allows me to just like transcend because, you know, you mentioned something earlier about, you know, not having that, not looking up, you know, we're so caught up in our screens now more than ever, you know, with this pandemic where we're like literally forced to connect with each other through screens. We're looking at screens more now than we, we ever have. Right. And, and it's, it, you, you have, you lose a sense of joy and a sense yes. of humanity, really. Like yes. I feel so disconnected Edie. And, um, but I also feel disconnected with myself because I am so yes. caught up in all the distractions. Right. Yes. I need to go on a walk. Yes. <laughs> yes. You certainly do a pilgrimage. Absolutely. And you know, joy is bigger yeah. than cancer. Joy is bigger than pain and suffering. Joy allows us to rise above anything that's happening, but we have to get our joy back. It's like you said, we have to find, you said, I have to find myself, myself. That's your joy. You have to get that back. And I will just say that that it's the small things that really get to us as much as the big things like cancer. And I think what has happened to us this year, do you know, I feel... I feel personally my spirit as spiritually deflated spiritually with going through coronavirus the last year as I felt going through six years of stage four cancer. Mm, It's that serious. It's the constant bombardment of the negativity. It's the constant bombardment of fear. It's the constant bombardment of um, a media media is just overwhelming our senses 
It's too much for us to take in. I know it is for me. I I had to, I've had to turn off everything. I I don't I don't watch any news. I don't listen to any news. I have to just isolate myself from it because it impacts my my spirit so so profoundly. And I I will not let my spirit die. No, 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 no. Well, I know if anybody will succeed at that, it's you, Edie. So, you know, tell us, how is your health now? I was at Stanford Cancer Center in September. We did full set of scans again. And um, I, right now, there are no obvious tumors. Uh, There are a couple of spots that we're keeping an eye on. Uh, and, um, but, but, you know, you, you learn a stage four cancer that a couple of things, number one, you learn that a spot is a spot until it starts to grow. And, uh, although you never take anything for granted, uh, you anticipate, well, that could start growing. So I'm not going to stop what I'm going to do. I'm not going to start, stop living, uh, because, with cancer, you are living with a gun to your head, which can be a positive thing. It actually spurs you to live. Um, yeah. the, the next thing you learn uh, with uh, with uh, with cancer is that you you learn the difference between real pain and pain. And uh, I can remember going to see Doctor Fisher and, and saying, "Oh my gosh, this hurts and that hurts," and I was really could be very fearful about what was going on inside of me. And he'd look at me and he'd say. And this is Dr. Fisher. I love him to death. He'd say, Edie, I think that's a little old lady pain. I don't think that's uh, that's uh, that's cancer. And, of course, the, the nurse would jab him in the ribs and say, Dr. Fisher. But he, he had such a great sense of humor. You know, you need that sense of humor. Uh, but I, and, I, and what he was saying is he's saying, he's saying uh, 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 a serious pain is a pain that lasts and lasts and it gets worse. Uh, a not-so-serious pain is a pain that comes and goes. Um, so, so uh, don't, don't, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small pains. Just know that they come and go, uh, be thankful when they go <laughs> yeah. and, and, and know they'll probably come back. But, but it, the serious pain, uh, is the, is the, uh, the, the pain that stays and intensifies. And, um, that's been a great learning for me, um, because, um, yeah, I, I wow. really don't feel a lot of pain because I know what real pain is. And, and I feel a lot of discomfort. I feel uh, I have a lot of physical issues, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't really stress too much about them. It is what it is. Well, um, I'll have to say, you know, like I'm, I knew there would be tears. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just know at, at the end of, of our friend's life, it was, that was one of the biggest things was the pain and it's hard Yes. See, and and I know that one of the one of the biggest takeaways from this conversation, and also one of my last com- my last conversation with Stephanie, was as how quick. And I know you were like this, probably at when you were in the thick of it. Um, they are to to take care of you and to assure you that that they're okay and. And you can't even imagine how much pain they are in, right? And how much pain you were in. And just to know that that tenacity and spirit, um, I just have to say, you know, just because I just saw what that looked like in person. 
it, just to I'm so grateful to you. Just, 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 just to though calm, calm your 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 soul a little bit, Lisa May. Um, I will just say that with our modern pharmaceuticals, with our modern care, that they can um, pretty much keep us pain free, even though we're in the grips and the throes of death, and and it looks and it is horrific to who's looking at us, uh, and who's watching us as we just waste away, if you will. Uh, but oftentimes we we and I've been through some really really horrific surgeries and stuff, um, and I've been in emergency room situations uh, quite a few times. But um, but what you're seeing is so much worse than what I'm feeling often, and there's some comfort in that. Is that is that it's more painful for you, sweetheart, than it is than it than it might have been for Stephanie. Um, yes. Um, Stephanie, um, Stephanie lived life. She lived life. And um, everything that I saw about her was not only did she live her life, but she was grateful. She expressed that gratitude and she shared that gift of positivity. Uh, and, and, you know, she's still with us. Lisa May, she's still with us. She is still here. It's just her body that has departed, but her spirit remains. Thank you, Edie. You're so, you're such an incredible spirit. And I'm truly, truly, truly grateful to, to spend this time with you. And we're so passionate here at the Wonder Women Tech Show about vulnerability, which is why I feel so comfortable being this open and this raw with my emotions. But I'd love you to share with our audience um, something that you haven't shared with anyone else so far. I want to just make a few comments about vulnerability. Yeah. When we're the most vulnerable is when we meet the most angels and they Mm. seem to find us Lisa May. Yeah. And they, whether it's in an ICU with coronavirus or an emergency room or even a hospital, or if it's out on an old mission trail, or if it's in Mexico and you're all alone and you're hungry and there's no water and you're at a rancho that doesn't have any lights or electricity and they just have a propane stove to light water. And they just have a bed propped up on concrete blocks and wood planks. Um, I met like Lisa Maria. She scooted over on those that plank to make room for me and my sleeping bag. Uh, I met so many angels on the mission trail in Mexico. Mm. I met so many angels on the mission trail through California. I met so many angels in the hospitals. And my healthcare team is my family. We are closer. It's not a patient doctor. Uh, you become family. And, yeah. and what, um, yes, vulnerability. You know, the Hebrew scriptures teach us that when we suffer the mightiest is when we feel God's presence the strongest. Yeah. That's so true. Lisa May, I'd love to go for a walk with you. 
I'd love to walk with you. Oh, I'd love to walk with you. I think that that would be, that needs to be on my bucket list because, you, you know, just even sitting here in the studio with you and chatting with you and learning from you and growing from you and being inspired by you, like my life is truly, truly forever changed. You're a very, very beautiful soul and spirit, Lisa May. And your soul and spirit is, it's right now, it's tapping, it's tapping on your heart and saying, hey, hey, let's go. Let's Wake go. up. Wake <laughs> up. Exactly. Let's go. Well. I, that's so wonderful. That's so wonderful that you're hearing it. Yeah, I, I, I have been actually. It's been weeks of it. I mean, we already know the answer to this. But I have to ask, you've led an incredible, an incredible life, a challenging one, but also one filled with purpose and angels, as you said. Would you take the easy road or the road less traveled by and why? I'd take the straight road. I don't mean to be evasive. I'd take the straightest road, uh, uh, because and, and I'd co- I'd take the road that I know is going somewhere, uh, and uh, and the yes, uh, the road less traveled has <laughs> a walker. There's a couple of things that scare you to death. Number one is when you hear the words, "I know a shortcut." Another <laughs> <laughs> thing that scares you to death is, "Oh, look at this road. Uh, let's let's take this." When you don't know where you're going. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, that's travel. a good point. It's less travel for a reason, Lisa. You learn all the practical things when you're out there. You learn. You learn so much about life uh, when you're walking a mission trail. When you're on your pilgrimage, you will learn so much about life and love and you. I love. Love, love that answer, Edie. And I didn't expect anything less than extraordinary extraordinary from you. Thank you for showing up. This was an incredibly beautiful conversation. And I appreciate you sharing and being here with us today. And thank you, Lisa May. I know you've had a migraine for two days. I know that, you know, COVID is a hard thing to restore our respiratory capacity in our respiratory system. I know that you've had a lot of loss, a lot of, a lot of whammies, a lot of whammies. But girl, you're still standing. And this is one of the best, darndest interviews I've ever had. Oh, so, thank you. you. We're thank still you. standing. <laughs> we're still standing. And we're going to walk together. I know it. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing what's next. Me too. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for being here, innovators. We'll see you next week when we take on the world one more time.